This morning's scripture reading comes from John chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth, we speak of what, what that you know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? This is God's word. For the past month, we've been looking uh, at the gospel according to John. The gospel according to John answers that most important question of who is Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to be looking into the entire season leading up to Christmas. Who is Jesus Christ? The most important question that we can ask ourselves, the most important question the central question of all of history. And this passage, famous passage, is a remarkable passage because Nicodemus, here's this member of the Jewish ruling council, and yet with all of his education, he wants to learn about Jesus. And who is Jesus? We're going to learn about that. What does he learn? Because Jesus Christ says that the Christian life is so new, so transforming, the change that you undergo is so radical that they call it the new birth. They call it new life. And so this text appropriately teaches us three things about what it means to have new life in Christ. One is the healing of our egos. Two is the healing of our deepest longings. And lastly, the healing of our fatigue. The healing of our ego, the healing of our deepest longings, the healing of our fatigue. First, we're going to look at the healing of our ego. In verse 1, who's Nicodemus? Nicodemus is, we learned that he's a member of the Jewish ruling council. So he's an older man, and, and basically he's a ruler, which means that he's educated, he's got credentials, he's got a pedigree, a very nicely groomed pedigree. He's, got, he's trained. He's been, he, people see him, they see a man who's put together, they see a man who thinks on his feet, they see a man who's intelligent. And on top of that, he was a Pharisee, which means he has tremendously high moral standing because you understand the Pharisees, we look at Pharisees today and we, we, we look down on Pharisees because of what the Bible connotes in the New Testament. But in reality, the Pharisees, they were committed to a system of 635 laws that were designed around to ensure that you would obey the Ten Commandments. And so Nicodemus was a righteous man. Nicodemus was a good man. You would want a man like Nicodemus in your neighborhood. And he doesn't need higher moral standards. 
He lived life to the highest of moral standards. But look, he comes to Jesus. Jesus has no education. Jesus has no title. Jesus has no credentials. Jesus has no training. And yet, Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the nighttime and he says, Rabbi. That's deep humility. Tremendous amount of humility. Even though Jesus is very unpopular, verse 2, he comes to him at night and he says, let's discuss this. Teach me. Tremendously open-minded is Nicodemus. Very admirable. Here's an educated, trained, moral, well-put-together, open-minded individual who's stable, who's humble, he's respectable, and yet Jesus, who has no education, no credentials, no training, unpopular, and yet Jesus, this unpopular, untrained, uneducated man, comes to Nicodemus and says, you must be born again. Nothing you've done up until this point counts. To be born again is what? You have to start over. That's what he's telling Nicodemus. Now think about this. When an average person hears the phrase being born again or you hear the term born again Christian, what do you think of? You think of a certain type of person. Usually that person is either A, incredibly emotional, has experienced some sort of emotional transformation, right? Or a person who's committed to just reliving a a moral life. You know, I lived my life this way, now I'm going to live a moral life. So you either have someone who's incredibly emotional or someone who's incredibly moral, right, who's committed to a new standard of morality. Nicodemus, this passage, that's why it's in the Bible, because he blows those two paradigms away. Why? Look at Nicodemus. The very fact that Nicodemus is in the Bible tells us that being a Christian cannot be a call to greater morality. Why? Because Nicodemus is the highest moral person. At the same time, it cannot be a call to an increased more, uh, emotional state. Why? Because Nicodemus is not emotional. And, it's, and that does, it's not just relegated to people who are educated. In chapter 4, you have a woman who's immoral, uneducated, and yet dialogues with Jesus. There's no emotional outburst. There's no emotional outcry. There's nothing that, that, that shows you that this woman is emotionally uh, heightened in any, in any sense of the word. And so, if anything, being born again challenges morality. It challenges religiosity. And it challenges your emotional state or your emotional highs. What this passage tells us and what Jesus is really saying is that no matter how good you are, no matter how well put together your life is, or no matter how messed up your life is, chapter 4, we're going to get to that, you can be born again. You must be born again. This is the healing of your ego. No matter how much you failed, this is the humbling of your ego, thus healing your ego, no matter how successful you are. New life means you have a new ego. This is the end of snobbishness. This is the end of comparing yourself to another person because of how you've been brought up, because of what kind of educational status you have, because of what type of career choices you've made. This is the end of entitlement, what you think you deserve because of how much you've arrived. This is the healing of our egos. Secondly, this passage teaches us that Jesus heals our deepest longings. Verse 5, as you move on in this text, Jesus says, Nicodemus, you have to be born of water and the Spirit. What is water? Water, if you think about all the things that water does for you, water is life-giving, water is cleansing, water strengthens you when you're weak, when you're dry, God's Spirit. What does God's Spirit do when He enters into your life? It's life-giving. He's cleansing. 
He strengthens you when you are dry. In other words, the water and spirit are not two different things. Jesus is really talking about this. He's, he's using those terms synonymously because throughout the Bible, they're used synonymously. And what Jesus is saying is, if God's spirit is in you, you have new life, no matter your weakness. You have cleansing, no matter your brokenness. You have strength. You can have strength no matter how dry your life is. That's very important. Because for most people, and I'm willing to bet a lot of people in this room, We think the term being born again means I have a new behavior, behavioral modification. I'm changing the way I act, and that's the mistake. Because on one hand, it does produce a change in your behavior, but it's a lot more than that. It's not based on a change in your behavior. They say Michael Jordan, arguably, to some not arguably, the greatest basketball player of all time, Michael Jordan, every year to this day, Michael Jordan in his young 50s right now. They say he's still the best player on his basketball team that he owns. Michael Jordan goes to his trainer every year to contemplate returning to the NBA, believe it or not. They say that if he were to return to the NBA, he could probably average somewhere in the high teens to this day. And uh, every year he goes to his trainer and he basically crafts a workout strategy, a plan to get him in shape to return to professional basketball. Every year, he contemplates this. Every year, he says, I want you to help me improve. That's not what Christianity is. To be a Christian is not to improve. It's not to become better. It's not to improve a certain quality that's weak. It's not to become nicer. Jesus says, you need to be born again, which means you need to be new. It's not being nicer. It's to be new. That and that, it's a transformation. That's going to heal all of our longings. What do I mean by that? I'm going to, I'm going to show you basically the course of most people in our, in our lives today, okay? You start out as a child, and as a child, you're taught by your parents to be good, to be good children, to be a good boy, to be a good girl. And as you learn to be good, what happens is it produces a certain type of shame when you're not good. It starts very, very young. And so you start to grow up and you start to understand shame and you start to feel shame when you mess up. And with that comes anger and jealousy and bitterness. Why? Because as you grow up, you may learn to become nice. You may learn to become good, but you don't learn to become new. And so now you get older, you enter into high school, college, and and that stage of your life, high school and college, you matriculate into high school, you matriculate into college, you get into the culture of other high school and college students, you get into the culture, and you start to, you want to fit in. And uh, you want to meet new people, you want their approval, so you start to do things that are counter to what you actually were taught when you were younger. And uh, the reason why is because inside there's this deep, desperate loneliness. And so you need to fit in. And you want people's love and you want people's approval. And so what that does is you're constantly working for people's approval. And when you do that, you become very, very tired and you become jealous and you become uh, shameful at times and you become angry based on what you do or do not do, right? And then you get older. And as you get older, you start to feel a bit more mature, a bit more comfortable yourself, but that undercurrent of loneliness still resides inside. It's still there. It's not like you've addressed that undercurrent of loneliness. So what you do is you turn your attention away from all, a certain type of lifestyle, and you say, you know what? I believe that a woman or a man in my life is going to solve my problems. If only somebody will love me, then I will feel okay, then I will be okay. And as a result, you get into a lot of relationships that you probably had no business getting into, 
And because of the nature of what happens in those relationships, some of you become sexually active, some people become very promiscuous, you start to abuse others, you start to feel abused, you start to use other people, you start to feel used. Life becomes this game of manipulating other people and being manipulated, and you become so broken, so broken, that, and, and in there you have, there's anger, and there's bitterness, and there's jealousy, and there's fear and shame. It's all still there, right? And um, as a result, you start to stay in these relationships a lot of times a lot longer than you probably should because you feel like that's still better. You feel like that's the only way I can feel okay. Well, what happens is at some point you wake up and you say, you know what? No more women in my life. I will not let a woman or a man in my life drive my, my way of life, drive my identity. So what do you pour into next? You start to pour into your career. Success. Yes. I need to get wealthy. I need to make money. I need to accomplish things in life. And so what you end up doing is you end up fighting with people, lying, cheating. You start to manipulate people and you get manipulated. You start to use people, you get used, right? All to stay ahead, all to stay afloat. And then you realize, wow, sometimes I can get ahead by being good. And if I'm not good, then you feel shame and failure and all that kind of stuff and jealousy and bitter and anger. And sometimes I can get ahead if I can just get drunk. And sometimes I can get ahead if I sleep with certain people. And as a result, what happens? Then there's the kill. Then there's the shame. Then there's the jealousy. Then there's the anger. Then there's the craving of, and lusting after approval, desperately trying to feed this undercurrent of loneliness in your life, wanting love, except this time it's with your coworkers. This time it's your boss. Do you understand what I'm saying? All those things are still there. They all come back. Why? Because even though culturally you may have advanced, technologically you may have advanced, Educationally, you may have advanced. Your tastes may have gotten more refined. You are still not new. New birth is not help me improve, fix my self-esteem, fix my broken sense of worth. The new birth according to Jesus. Because, you know, Nicodemus, he has an identity. He has a sense of worth. He is educated. He is as far ahead as you can be. And yet Jesus says, you need to be new. That is amazing if you think about it. That is amazing. It's amazing that Nicodemus sat there and took it all. It's amazing. Jesus says, the new birth means you have a new identity, a new sense of worth. So new, again, it's called new life, new birth. And so in verses 3 and verses 5, verse 3 and 5, he says, you need to be born again to see the kingdom of God. You need to be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven, to enter the kingdom of God. What does that mean? When you become spiritually alive, you have the ability to start to sense spiritual realities you couldn't sense previously in your life. Why couldn't you sense these things before? I'll tell you what it is. You come into church, you've been, you might have been doing that all your life, maybe in some ways conditional. So you come in, and there are certain things that you've heard all your life that one day, boom, all of a sudden, it starts to make sense. All of a sudden, boom, it hits you in a certain way that it never hit you before. Boom, all of a sudden, it brings you to tears. Boom, all of a sudden, there's conviction in your life. Why does that happen now? You ever ask yourself that? Why now? It's the Spirit working in your life, applying the gospel inside, planting in your life. Why doesn't that happen before? In Ephesians chapter 4, 
the Apostle Paul explains the reason why it didn't happen before. He says, we are darkened in our understanding and we've lost all sensitivity. We are darkened in our understanding. We've lost all sensitivity. In other words, we've become numb. You ever try to feel something when you're numb? When you try to feel something when you're numb, you start to do all sorts of things to feel something. He says, when your heart is darkened and you have no clarity and you're blind and you cannot see and there's no light and you become numb, you just want to do things to feel something. So if you don't feel worth, you're going to do something to feel worth. You're just looking to something to feel worth, something to, to feel a sense of worthiness in life. You look everywhere, your heart, in essence, becomes promiscuous. New birth, when the Spirit enters into your life, what happens is you start to gain new sensibilities. Your sensibilities open up. You start to see things you didn't see before. The Bible actually starts to make sense. You start to hear things that you've probably been hearing all your life, but all of a sudden it starts to make sense. You start to taste and see that the Lord is good. When you've been tasting it all your life, now your taste buds are changing, your spiritual taste buds. You can start to see things that before you might have known about, but you didn't sense it. It means you go back to all the things that you once heard, all the things that you learned all your life, and all of a sudden, the Bible becomes alive in you. It becomes food. You realize man does not live by bread alone. All my life I've been searching after bread. I've been looking for satisfaction. And as a result, I'm looking for it in my career or in a relationship or all these other types of things. But I realize man lives on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Things that you once heard now become something that get you. It becomes something that thrills you. It becomes something that comforts you. It becomes something that convicts you. And you say, gosh, why am I hearing this now? It's because you have a new appetite. And you have a new sight. It replaces all your sight. An appetite that replaces your appetites. You have uh, new ears to hear things replaces everything that you've heard. It becomes soulful to you. The Bible's not just words. It becomes music to you. It becomes alive to you. Some of you are, hearing, are here, and you're saying, you know, I hear you, and I even believe what you're saying. And I want it, but I'm so weak. And I'm so young. How do I get there? I want to encourage you. The gospel is like a seed. Jesus likens the gospel to a seed. You know what a seed is? A seed is something that's very, very small, very, very weak. It's very small, but inside that seed is dynamic power and energy to sustain everything that an oak tree has for life for years and years to come. It begins with a little seed. And when that seed of the Spirit is planted in your life, as it's watered, as it grows, boom it starts to grow into an oak of righteousness. That's Isaiah 63, an oak of righteousness. That's what happens. And so what that means is, you know, people, for those of us here who are cons- so concerned because we've tried a lot of things, but it doesn't work, just hang in there. You gotta just hang in there. You gotta just stick with it. You're concerned because you wanna try, but I'm afraid of what I have to give up. You gotta let go of your assumptions. You gotta let go of your conditions. You gotta be like Nicodemus. You gotta ask. Just keep asking. There's nothing wrong with asking. Just keep asking. Because if you have questions, it may mean that there's life. And once you take it in, once you take the seed of the gospel in, the gospel heals all your deepest longings. Because the deepest longings for love and approval and satisfaction have been met 
in the person of Christ, implanted in you by the seed of the Spirit. Do you see that? The gospel heals all of our deepest longings for acceptance and approval and love and righteousness. Now, how? How's that possible? The last point here is, uh, is the gospel heals our fatigue. Being a Christian means that our fatigue is resolved. The entire passage can, can be summed up to be about being born again. Nicodemus is confused. Later on, you see in John chapter 4, the very next chapter, this great example of Jesus calling a woman, except this woman is broken, and this woman is promiscuous, and this woman is poor, this woman is uneducated, and this woman is outcast, and this woman is irreligious. She's got no credentials, no pedigree, no education, and yet even she is born again. Very, very significant because Jesus calls them both. He meets with them both. One's a man who's an upper class. The other is a female, lower class. Completely opposite spectrums. And yet Jesus intentionally meets with them both and calls them in. One is a part of society. The other is outside of society. Jesus calls them both. Very, very significant. Nicodemus could have easily said, Jesus, I've arrived. Tell me how to get better. I want to improve because that's just my nature. I just want to get better and better in life because I've made it. I've worked hard. I've made it. Jesus says here to Nicodemus, you know, I get it. You are the guy that belongs in the Rotary Club, and yet you must be born again. He says it doesn't matter whether you were born in Samaria and are a prostitute or whether you were born here, part of the Jewish ruling council. Both of you are the same. Both of you have been trying to find God on your own, trying to get to God on your own. What does that mean? Whether you try to save yourself by being moral, by being helpful, by being beautiful, by being educated, it doesn't matter. You're still trying to save yourself. You're still trying to find a sense of worth on your own. And the Bible says salvation, salvation, being saved, belongs to the Lord. In Jonah, Jonah chapter 2, if you know the story of Jonah, he was a prophet. He was a prophet that was very well respected, actually. And yet God calls him to go to another country to share the gospel. And Jonah doesn't want to because prophets never go to other countries. They stay in their own country. The very nature of being a prophet is to rise up against your people and speak to them. He wants to, he's called to another country, and he doesn't like that country. And so he's angry, and he's bitter, and he's upset, and there's this whole fiasco, and there's a storm, and he's running away from God, and there's a storm, and he falls into the water, or actually he gets thrown out overboard into the water, and a big fish swallows him, if you know the story, the narrative, and he's taken down to the depths, and there Jonah prays a prayer, because there in the belly of a fish, in the bile of a fish, throw up all over him, at his lowest point, literally the lowest point, he says, I've gone down to the depths of Sheol, he says, the bottom of the ocean, as far away from God as one can be. And he says, I realize that I've been trying, I've been using my religiosity, I've been using my goodness, I've been using my credentials all my life to feel worthy because God surely would honor me as I am. And what he realized is, and he says it in his prayer in Jonah chapter 2, salvation belongs to the Lord. It's all because of grace. 
sheer grace. He realized that religion, his pedigree, these are all ways that he's been using to save himself. And yet salvation belongs to the Lord, and that's when he got saved. He got saved when he realized he was trying to save himself. And it brought him to the depths. He got saved when he realized that he was trying to be God all by himself. Why? Because salvation belongs to the Lord. And if you're trying to save yourself, you're trying to be God. He realized, I've been trying to save myself. I've been trying to be God all my life. When you let go of that, that's when you become saved. That's when you become saved. Because if you're going to be born again, you understand it's only by grace, through God's intrusion into your life, for some of us, that's how we feel, through God's intervention into our lives, through God's power. You have nothing to do with salvation. Think about this. When you're born, we have a lot of new mothers here, a lot of newborn babies, a lot of people who are getting used to new life. As a baby, none of you remember when you were babies, but as a baby, as a baby, you know, babies, when they're born, they don't contribute anything to the process. They don't even plan to be born. There's no negotiation. There's no plan. There's no setup for this. Babies, when they're born, they're just born. Why? Because it's all based on what their parents have done. The problem is there's something in our hearts. There's something in our hearts that says you need to do it. There's something in our our hearts that says you can do it. After all, you're beautiful, and you're better than that schlub over there. You're much better than that person over there. You're better. You're better than him. You're better looking than her. You come from a better school, from a better family. You can make it all by yourself. And that is actually what keeps you away from the grace of God. That is what keeps you away from the grace of God. It's not until you realize that salvation is a gift by sheer grace that you can be born again. That's what Jesus was asking Nicodemus. Nicodemus, this this wise, respectable man, do you know that that's actually preventing you from coming to God? It's actually hurting you. You are Israel's teacher. Do you not understand? That nature of who you are is actually preventing you from seeing the one thing that you need to see that is all by grace. That means that you have to let go of all the things that you thought meant life to you. You need to let go of things like your desirability. You need to let go of your buying power. It's not just the fact that you're wealthy. It's what that wealth does for you. Now I have buying power in my life. You see? It's what you think that, you know, it's not just the fact that people respect you. That's not a bad thing. But it's what that respect does to you. You have to let go of that. You have to come naked before God. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. When you come to God like this, you're born again. Now, another thing about babies. When babies are born... I've never seen it. All the births I've seen, well, I've not seen many. I'm, all the babies, the newborn babies I've seen, from the moment that they're born, right, I don't see them saying, they come, you pull the baby out, boop, there's a head, ah, you don't see that with any baby. No baby does that. A baby comes out and they got all this stuff on them and they can't see, they're blind. They're, they, you know, they, they can't, their eyes are crusty, right? And, uh, you, know, you know, they used to do, they used to slap the baby because they wanted to make sure they were still alive. 
And all of a sudden, that one jolt of reality, all of reality hits them. They take their first breath, and that air is bitter and cold, and it enters. And you ever go in a hospital room? It's cold when a baby's born, right? And they start to wail, and they start to cry. Why? Because they were so warm, and they were so comfortable. There was so much cushion there in life. And now, stark reality hits a baby. And now they realize life is suffering and life is painful and life is blinding because the light of, they've seen light for the first time in like 10 months, really. And now they're blinded and their eyes are crusty and they can't breathe. They got stuff in their throats and they're coughing it out. That's what's going on right, with a baby. They're never happy. And what Jesus is saying here is that new birth isn't always great. When there's new birth, there's suffering. It's not the absence of suffering. You understand why you suffer. And you understand that that suffering can't destroy you. And you're going to see why. But the whole virtue of new birth is this. You are born through the pain and labor of someone else, the mother. When a newborn is born, it comes at the cost of the mother. The mother is the one that's in pain. The mother is the one that's in labor. They call it labor. The mother is the one who's anguishing. The mother is the one who's crying. The mother is the one who's struggling to breathe. Jesus Christ here is saying that, now we've got to remember, when in Jesus' time, today when a baby is born, the baby is born relatively safe, under relatively safe conditions. But when Jesus was talking about being born again, birth, labor, they were actually pretty dangerous things. That's why you have big families, because you wanted to ensure the children wouldn't always make it. The babies wouldn't make it. The children wouldn't make it past a certain amount of days. And so because of that, um, Jesus is talking about a time when the ba- a baby didn't see life unless the mother saw a great risk to her own life. He says, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. Why this metaphor? What he's saying is, if you get new life, if you experience life, it's only through the pain and suffering of someone else who not only risked his life, but gave his life for you. Someone had to die on the cross for you. And not just experience physical pain and suffering, but something far deeper, something far more painful. Because on the cross, Jesus Christ suffered the ultimate pain. Tasted the ultimate bitterness. On the cross, Jesus is laboring. Jesus is struggling to breathe. Jesus is pushing. Jesus is laboring. Jesus is tasting the pain. Jesus is crying. Jesus is screaming. You know, he's offered a form of, today you have anesthetics. You have anesthesia to help dull the pain, to make births, new birth today, a lot easier than it was back in the day. On the cross, Jesus is offered a form of anesthesia twice, and yet he's refused it. He came into the world. He's got no status, no education, no pedigree, and on the cross, on top of that, he's stripped completely naked. And when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's really saying is, I came into the world, no status, no title, no wealth, no cover. And now I really have no status. I've lost it. I've lost my title. I've lost my wealth. I've lost my cover. I have no more pedigree. Why? This is God's only son, the only pedigree you will need. And yet he says, I've been forsaken. I've been lost. I've been left for dead, left behind. God's only son. 
That's all he ever needed. And yet he says, I have been forsaken. I have been forgotten. I'm no longer your son. I've given it up. And I've took on the death. I've took on the wrath. I've took on the hell, the anger, the bitterness. And as a cross ripped apart his body, the departure of God from him ripped apart his soul. Divine punishment ripped apart his soul, ripped his heart apart. Why? Why? Jesus got what we deserved so that we could have what he deserved. Jesus Christ lost the sonship to the Father. Why? So that we could be called sons of God. Jesus got the wrath of God. Why? So that we could have the Spirit in us, the Spirit of God. In John chapter 16, verse 21, Jesus talks about a woman in labor. No, he's heading towards his death. And he talks about this woman in labor. And what he says is this. He says, I'm like this woman. Basically what he's saying is, I'm like a woman in labor because the hour has come. The contractions, the divine contractions have started. The hour has come. And any time in the book of John you hear the word hour, it's always in reference to his death. And so he says, time for me to die has come. And as a result, I am like a woman in labor. And what he's basically saying is, in spite of the fact that I will be in great pain, a mother is in incredible pain, the sight of the child will fill her with joy to a degree where she says, all the pain is worth it. All the suffering is worth it. He says, I am like that mother. I will labor, I will suffer, I will struggle even to breathe on the cross. But when I look around and see who I am saving, that joy is what's going to keep me going. That joy is what fills my heart. Isaiah 53, it says at the end, it is that joy that satisfied this suffering servant of God. He says, it will all be worth it. It will all be worth it. That's the end of our fatigue. That's the end of our fatigue. Because if Jesus gave his life for you, no matter, and you know who you are, if Jesus gave his life for you, he has found it so worthy to give up his perfect life for you. That's the healing of your deepest longing. You have that love. You have the approval. You have the acceptance. It's the healing of your ego. It's not based on anything you've done or anything anyone else has done. It's only based on what Jesus Christ has done. And until you see and believe that, until you're able to rest in that, it's the healing of your fatigue. You no longer have to work for the acceptance of other people. You no longer have to keep working for the acceptance of God. You see that? That's, it's that cosmic searching, that cosmic longing that I have to make it, I have to arrive, I have to be there, and I have to beat him out, and I have to beat her out because that's the only way I can feel worthy about myself. It's the end of that fatigue. Do you get it? You cannot be born again. You will not experience the joy. You will not experience the gladness of it all until you see how worth it you were for Christ to come and die for you. Plant that worth into yourself. That's the end of overworking. You can rest. Right? You can rest. Plant that into yourself when you're overworking and you should be with your family. Plant that into yourself when you're feeling inadequate, working for people's approval, tempted to do all sorts of things for their, things for their approval. Plant it as a seed. Reflect on it. Meditate on it. That's why we have the Bible. That's why we pray. So we can plant these things deeper, meditate on it, read it, trust it. God's word is good. Man does not live bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Trust it. Let it be food for you. Let it nourish you. Take it in. 
that same spirit that brought Jesus into the world, the Apostles' Creed, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. That same spirit that raised Jesus back from the dead, it's that power that as a seed is planted in you. That means you have that power. In light of temptation, you have that power. In light of sinfulness, you have that power. What's going to get rid of your guilt? It's that power that's applied to you. It's nothing you can do about it. You ever read Macbeth? Out, damn spot, out, because he's riddled with guilt. Not all the perfumes in Arabia, he says, will sweeten these bloody hands. That's what he says. You cannot get rid of the guilt on your own. You cannot rid of, get rid of that longing, that desperate loneliness, that desperate undercurrent of loneliness. You cannot get rid of it on your own. But to know that the Spirit resides in you, it's powerful. It changed a wealthy, educated, pedigreed, scholarly ruler like Nicodemus. And if it could change a man like Nicodemus, steeped in pride, it can change you. If it could change a poor, uneducated, non-pedigreed, immoral outcast like the Samaritan woman in chapter 4, that's the next lesson, it can change you. It can change you. I'm going to close with this. You know, in John chapter 19, this is the epilogue of Nicodemus. Jesus Christ is still on the cross. Nicodemus is one of the people that actually asks for his body. He asks to bring him down. He's the one that asks to dress the body. He's the one that asks to prepare for the burial. It means that he literally got there and put spices on him, cleaned him, wiped off all that blood and mess. I mean, he's been on the cross for hours and hours on end. And, and he's sitting there, he's wiping off the blood. He's preparing him for burial. Now, the Bible doesn't explicitly say Nicodemus was saved. There's no, there's no phrase like that in, in the book of John. But we see him multiple times throughout. We see him in John chapter 7. We see him in John chapter 19. And it's a vignette of Nicodemus popping up. At a time when all of Jesus' friends had run away from him, at a time when everybody that Jesus was close to had abandoned him, at a time when the mayhem, chaos among Jesus' friends, and yet Nicodemus stands up, a member of the Jewish ruling council, stands up and says, can I have that body? And the thing that he does is something that only women do. Only women wipe the body uh, back then. Only women put spices on. It was considered a menial, manual task that only women should do. And yet Nicodemus is there kneeling wiping Jesus' body. This great man, you're starting to see the feminine side, the gentle side, the tender side, the loving and caring and concerned side. This great scholar, you know, who would have no business being near Jesus says, can I have the body before we bury him? Can I have him? He stands up in front of everyone. The cultural pride, the male ego, gone. The deepest longings for approval and acceptance before his friends, gone. Nicodemus became bolder, more courageous, and humbler. He doesn't say, oh, that's something that people beneath me do. He says, let me get down there. Let's bring him down. Let me get down there. He is more courageous. He becomes more flexible. This conservative Pharisee adhering to 635 laws to touch a dead man would render you unclean gets down and touches the dead man and says, I'm unclean. That's what he does. More flexible, more liberal than any liberal you would see. And yet, courageous and humble because he's new. Friends, that newness can be you.
Get it. Grasp it. Taste it. Let's pray.